0: Welcome to The Favorites, the podcast from the Action Network. And today, a very special NFL combine betting episode with a superstar guest. Let's get right to it. Let's get to the main thing. The main thing. 225 has the weight. We
1: got a live one. Lock it out. it out. Nice. Alvin Kamara. I didn't know much about him and I put his tape in and I almost fell over. Okay, here's Barkley. 233
2: pounds, 41 inch vertical, 29 on the bench press. That's a creative player on Matt. Wow. I mean, that is just nutty. 4-2-2. No wedge. A new record holder. It is John Ross. I saw two or three scouts look at their stopwatch and show other scouts as if, hey, did you get that? Did, am I reading this right?
0: Many, many years ago, when I first got out of college, my first job was as a fact checker at Sports Illustrated. My assignment was to fact check everything Peter King, the legendary NFL writer, wrote for the magazine. And over the course of the first couple years I was working at Sports Illustrated, Peter and I became close and he would send me out on assignments. And one year, he was unable to go to the NFL combine. And at this time, The Combine was not a primetime event televised over multiple days by the NFL network. It was a rinky-dink operation run out of the Holiday Inn in Indianapolis where they bring players out and you could maybe talk to them for 10 minutes and there were maybe 30 people covering it. But Peter would go over year. It's how he became so good at what he's done. And he couldn't go one year. So he told me, you got to go to the NFL Combine you're going to talk to agents, you're going to talk to players, you're going to get as much as you can, you're going to tell me everything you hear, you're going to go to St. Elmo's Steakhouse, you're going to sit at the bar, you're going to cozy up the GMs, they're going to whisper sweet nothings in your ear, and it's going to be the greatest thing you've ever experienced. And I got to tell you, he was totally and completely right. And since then, the NFL Combine has become everything I said it was. It is an NFL primetime extravaganza and more than anybody else, over the past 35 years, there is one person who is more responsible for turning the NFL draft into something that people care about. It has become something that 500,000 people are showing up in Nashville to see live. It is something that people are betting on the NFL combine. There is one man who had the foresight to see this can be content that people are interested all year round. He is my guest today from ESPN, legendary draft analyst, Mr. Mel Kuyper Jr. And tell me about yeah. your experiences with the Combine in the early days.
1: There never went never went to the combine, Chad, which would shock a lot of people because you couldn't get in and there was no way I was going to waste my time being at a, an event where you couldn't get in because there's too many juniors to evaluate and I was back home. I'd get all the numbers and all the official measurements and three cones and broad jumps and verticals and 10-yard splits and everything You'd get all those numbers. So why be there if you can't get in to even see the event? So I stayed here and evaluated all the juniors, got a head start on that and was really ahead of the game and I'd get the print out and be, move forward with it. So uh, Last year, we were at the Combine. This year, we'll be there again. But up until then, Chad, I had never attended a Combine in my life, going back when I started this thing in 1978.
0: By the way, that is such a great lesson for people because it tells, you, tells, every, it tells people everything they need to know about how to approach content, how to approach something you love, and that you don't have to be on the scene if you think you can find an advantage of doing it differently. You just said you got into this in 1978. Mm -hmm. Why did you even decide to start doing it in 1978?
1: Well, I, was, I was finished uh, you know, high school I was doing all the things that, that kids do back in those days but unlike a lot of high school kids I was sending reports to the NFL and I was giving my reports to Ernie Acorsi who was the GM of the Baltimore Colts and, and had worked in the Colts organization so I was able to do that got a head start on everything thought there would be a market for this type of thing because there was no way to improve your football team Chad from year to year the only way there was hardly any trades there was no free agency if your team was going to improve from 78 to 79 or 1980 to 81 the only way was via the NFL draft there was no other way to to do it. So you knew how critical this was. It was 12 rounds. It was 17 rounds, and it became 12 rounds. Think about that. So people were home didn't have a chance to know anything about these players, couldn't see any of these players, very few games were televised. So if you could provide this type of information to the college fans, the NFL fans, then I thought there could be a business here, a good opportunity. Ernie uh, encouraged me to do it. I had the support of my family. My father helped me immensely get the business started. He had all the business acumen. I had the football acumen. So we put it all together and we got it going and, like I say, Ernie was the one that encouraged me to make it available to public. Said so The public craves this type of information. So through Ernie is a push and his Support. Like I said, the support of my family. It was able to come to fruition in 1981 when we made it public. And we started putting out draft reports and sending them out to everybody. And it grew from there. And 83, 84 is when I started with ESPN.
0: But why was Ernie Acorsi, who was a legendary GM and then went on to be the GM of the Giants and helped build what eventually became those Super Bowl teams, why was he even listening to you? Like some high school punk like in Baltimore who left the (laughs) draft.
1: Well, I think, you know, the information has to be something that he feels is something that shows that you took time to do it. You obviously looked at the players. You studied the players. You had information that he felt was something that could be important to him. And he offered me a job with the Baltimore Colts. It led to, before I started ESPN, it's a crazy story how this all went in the timetable of it, Chad, because it all tied into the Baltimore Colts moving to Indianapolis. Ernie was the GM. He called me in 1983, said this was in, like, February of 83, said, I'd like you to come to work for me, in the Baltimore Colts you know, got approved by the NFL, ready to go. He said, well, I'll announce you in late July when camp opens. Just go through the draft, do what you're doing, go down to convention center and do your thing with the you know, the Baltimore Colts, the sponsor of the thing at the convention center with Bob Leffler. And he said, just go down there and talk to the fans and promote your books and do what you do so I did that went through it and then, of course remember John Elway was traded without Ernie's knowledge there was talk of the team possibly moving and he called me that June and said I cannot bring you in with the circumstances the way they are just continue doing what you're doing no harm no foul nobody even knew you were even going to be coming to work for the Colts I may be leaving soon and six months later I got a call from ESPN to come up and interview for the job and started with the ESPN and that draft in 1984 so I had Ernie not cared enough to say don't come here and I'd have gone there i'd have never had the espn job and i wouldn't have been in the nfl much longer because the colts ended up moving and things change and hey if you're not that guy's person like ernie was the one that would have brought me in then i probably would have been out doing something else right now
0: and the history of draft coverage would be entirely different no joke
1: yeah, no, I, I think somebody else would have stepped into that role. And that was when Bud Wilkinson retired, the legendary coach. I filled that position, that somebody else would have jumped in there to give those an opportunity to know these players. So when they were drafted, they had an idea of what was, who, you know, who could play, who couldn't, whether they could help their team, whether they were steals, whether they were reaches. All those things were not known because people couldn't see these players. Nobody had any idea around the country about who some of these players were and what they could or couldn't do. Remember, you weren't getting one to two games on television every Saturday in those days, Chad. But put it this way, when I needed a stat on a player. I had to call that school. I got to know all the sports information directors, the football contacts very well. I spent three to five hours a day just calling schools just to get basic statistical information. That that was the only way you could get it. But that allowed me to get relationships going, get to know these people. A lot of them I still talk to today, if you can believe that.
0: Your long distance bill must have been massive.
1: Oh, Like a phone book. But hey, that was what we had to do.
0: By the way, the way you describe having to call around sports information directors to get stats—that's what old school gamblers used to do. Like I know so many guys. <laughs> honestly, you know, they would raid around the airport to see when travelers came into Vegas early in the morning from East Coast cities, and they would discard their newspapers to see what the box scores were saying, and they would call. Like I know a guy who used to call the scores table to get lineups in real time for. The game started so he could know how to make his bets. Like all that old school investigative shoe leather, that's exactly what gamblers used to do.
1: Things then, in a way, Chad, where it allowed you to find out things that I wouldn't say people get lazy because of technology, but I just think when you're talking to somebody on the phone, I might have been calling about a basic stat that I needed, and all of a sudden something would come to light that I didn't even know. Well, I'll also remember that this player might have this. He might, yeah. You know, last month his numbers weren't that good, but he was bothered by this high ankle sprain, or he had a little bit of a shoulder, or he did this, or he was battling the flu, or things you would have never known. So those phone calls, while they were tedious and they were sometimes calls I didn't necessarily feel like making on a daily basis, you had to make and it really helped you get to know a lot about these players.
0: You know what I've always loved about you, Mal, is, and I don't say this to like stroke your ego, but I remember when McShay was coming up and he was writing for ESPN the magazine. I was editing McShay and slowly he started to appear on television more and more, it was getting harder and harder to get him in the magazine. I used to call him TV Todd because he'd call up the magazine and be like, I got a story for you. And I'd be like, oh, look who it is. It's TV Todd. weighing in with something to do. And like in all these years, you have never once acted competitively with him. And like you owned this space and could have gone out there and just tried to take this guy's knees out. Instead, he's become like an important partner to you in this whole thing. Were you ever concerned that this guy was going to come in and take your job?
1: Well, first of all, you applaud anybody that works hard at what they do. And he did. And uh, you want people like that to be so anything you can do to help people like that or give them any encouragement or any advice. Now, Some just don't continue on with it. There's, uh, there's some kids I, I thought would be able to move on and continue. But it, you know things happen and life, lives change. and They get a job and you got to pay your dues. And when I started out, we were losing money. We lost money for the first four years in this business Okay, in terms of putting out draft reports. My father lost money. We never knew if we'd make a dollar. But you keep going. And I always tell kids, three words should be on your chest. Pay your dues. When I started ESPN, I made $400 for the whole year. $400. But don't give up on any of this stuff. If you think you have something that's going to be a positive and it's going to work. you keep. And with Todd, in terms of myself, I've always wanted somebody to give me a different opinion. If you disagree, tell me. I, but with all those years I was on there and it was okay. Kuiper's the last word. Whatever. He, I didn't want that. I just wanted somebody else to, to take a different uh, approach and have a different viewpoint. And Todd came in a lot younger, all fired up about what, his opinions, and he brought it. He brought the enthusiasm. He brought the knowledge. And I encouraged that. And we became very good friends. I'm doing I can to help him. And I have along the way. I've been, I've been pushing and pushing for Todd to keep moving up and be there on the desk with me, on the set with me. And uh, he's done a great job. Daniel is a good friend. Mike Mayock was a good friend. Or is a good friend. He's with the team now. he was, he's not the NFL network anymore, but Mike's going to be a lifelong friend. I was ripped and criticized for even doing this. Every article was written with, why is this idiot from Baltimore putting this stuff out? Who cares about anything he says or writes? Some of these guys that wrote these articles are good friends of mine now. So that's the way it was back in those days. And then I noticed in the 90s, things started to change. Everybody was being a little more positive. And I kept saying, what's going on here? And you just noticed the tide turned because guess what? When everybody was now interested, all the critics had to shut up. Now everybody's loving the draft and loving everything about it, and everybody's participating, that even the naysayers had to now buy in.
0: That attitude of people is a little bit like the difference between doing gambling coverage in 2010 and doing gambling coverage in 2020. hmm Exactly. But I want to get on to the next segment. I'm going to want to talk about betting on the NFL combine. Before we get mm-hmm. to that, Michael Calabresi, one of our contributors, Is going to share a heartwarming story about a funeral, a bar, a million dollar bet, and a 13 year old.
3: So I go to a funeral with my father, and I'm 13 years old. And afterwards, we end up at the bar. Let me sit at the bar, everyone's smoking inside of the bar on the TV, St. John's is making a run there in the Elite Eight, led by Ron Artest, coached by Mike Jarvis, as well as a Temple team coached by John Chaney. So that just sets the stage for how long ago this was. On top of this, not only is our party from the funeral there, but also there's another group that just finished a and there's a gentleman at the end of the bar, and he looks incredibly distraught. So I kind of whispered to my father, you know, did he lose his wife? You know, was you know what happened? And the bartender, you know, very Long Island-esque, kind of nonchalantly goes by, oh, no, he's, he's fine. He just uh, has Gonzaga in his Final Four entry. So I get read right in on this situation, and there was a $10 pool run out of a little bar in Staten Island, and you only pick the Final Four teams, the champion, and the total score of the championship game. The special thing about this was they had such incredible volume that if you won, you were set to walk away with over a million dollars in cash. Two years previous, they hit a record 1.5 million cash money. So this guy, we, you know, at least we're being told, if Gonzaga wins, he will have all final four teams. It won't even matter who wins the championship game. He's already got it locked up. So... This poor son of a bitch is pacing back and forth. He looks like Jerry Tarkanian. He's got the towel in his mouth. He's rubbing his eyes. He's, you know, living and dying with every possession. Final minute, it's 63-62 UConn. They foul Khalid Elamine. Goes to the line, hits both foul shots. And Gonzaga's got the ball. Chance to tie it up. Matt Santangelo, who had an incredible run right up there on the level of Wally Zerbiak in that tournament. He misses a leaner with 10 seconds to go. They tap it out. UConn gets fouled. They win by five. But very quickly, the conversation goes, well, you know, that's a real shame. But like, how much did he hedge? Of course, he had to hedge this. He hedged $0 on a $10 bet to win $1.5 in cash. He didn't hedge. So the lesson was learned. It's been baked into me. My closest friends and family know me as Mikey Hedges. You don't go through a passion play like that and not come out of it with a learned lesson. Always hedge, you poor son of a bitch.
0: Michael, thank you for that very tender moment. Okay, let's move on to the next thing. The next thing. All right, I want to bring in Matthew Friedman, who's our own NFL draft expert. He's been dispensing expert advice about fantasy and rookies for the Action Network for the past couple of years. Mel, I'm going to make a very inside reference here from our ESPN days. Think of him as our very own Chris Sproul, your ESPN editor, your first draft podcast co-host. He knows everything there is to know. Friedman.
2: Say hello to Mel, one of your idols. It is awesome to be on the show. And Mel, I assure you, you have no need to feel intimidated by me.
1: Matt, any mention of Chris Sproul, you should be, that's a compliment. A huge compliment, Matthew. So I've heard a lot, uh, know a lot, and you do a great job. But your interest and everybody's interest in this whole giraffe process is pretty amazing.
0: Freeman, what kind of opportunities do you think there are going to be when markets start getting posted for the combine?
2: So people tend to want to bet on something to happen, especially if they can do it at long odds. So... If you're willing to lay some big juice, there's value in betting, specifically on betting for records not to be broken, whether that's the 40-yard dash, the bench press, the vertical jump. And then people also want to bet on their favorite college players to have big combine numbers. Mm -hmm. And that generally means there's value if you bet on some of the big names to underperform. And that's really true for the 40 time. For a lot of these prospects, you can find their 40 times as recruits or what they did at spring pro days. And bookmakers and bettors tend to rely on those times. But the thing is, A lot of those are hand-timed, whereas the combine has an electronic time. And so that means a pro day 40 is about 0.05 seconds faster than a combine 40. And we're going to talk about this with rugs. If a guy runs a 4.25 at a pro day, that equates roughly to a 4.3 at the combine. So there's a difference between the hand-timed and electronic 40s, and that tends to create value on the over for the 40 combine times. Now Listen to that breakdown about betting on
0: the NFL combine.
1: Was a great rundown, Matthew. I never thought it would come to that, but hey, it's interesting stuff. And uh, so we're there, and, I, and you get the times. And, and you, you remember last year when Devin Bush and Devin White ran, you know, right around four four two, four four three, whatever. It was almost identical forties. And you like both those players, and that's that validation you want. Uh, the, the thing is, when you don't really have a high opinion of a player, and he runs great or he tests great, that's you almost say, "Boy, I missed something." Remember last year, Dev, I keep bringing up Devin Singletary running that was sort of like a four six six, and everybody, oh boy, what happened? And, oh, he can't go as high as we thought. I mean, I must have overrated him. What did I miss? I ended up having a great rookie year with Buffalo. Uh, and you know, so 40 times, Alvin Kamara didn't have a great 40 time when he came out, but he had a great vertical and a great broad jump. So his explosive skills were there. He didn't have the big time 40. Ran four, five, six. Juju Smith-Schuster, the year to John Ross, ran four, two, two. Juju Smith-Schuster ran four, five, five, four, and had a 32 and a half vertical. Ross had a 37 vertical. So you know, 40 times while they are critical, you just have to be careful. Yeah. You just have to be really careful of over-adjusting negatively or positively based on these numbers.
0: All right. TV Todd McShay, he has graded <laughs> 20 wide receivers for rounds one through three. I think Daniel Jeremiah, he put that number at 27. The number of wide receivers that Fox Bet has said would be drafted in round one, they put it at four and a half wide receivers. They put that total at four and a half, over under four and a half, Mel.
1: Yeah, four, you know, these numbers are right there from all, the. you know what they look at, they look at all these different mock drafts, and they see that you have Jerry Judy and CeeDee Lamb and Henry Ruggs III and T. Higgins almost as guarantees, so they put it at four and a half, okay? You want to go under, you want to go over. you got to get Laviska Chennault Jr. in there from Colorado, you'd have to get, you know, a K.J. Hamler in there, a Justin Jefferson from LSU, Hamler, Penn State, Jalen Rager, TCU, all borderline. So you need one of those borderline guys to fall in there, and it's going to, and Jefferson is certainly going to be important to see what that 40 time is. Uh, Chenault Jr. has got real good versatility. Some though think he's a second round pick, not a first. So I had five, so I would go over, but there's no guarantee.
2: Friedman, where are you going to land at? So Judy, Lamb, Higgins, they're all locked in for me. Uh, I've surveyed a lot of mock drafts out there from guys who historically have been pretty predictive, Mm -hmm. pretty accurate. And LaVisca Chenault is a first rounder in all of them. And I got to say, in all of these drafts, I've seen at least five wide receivers go in all of the first round mocks a lot of times six and so I, I think Chenault is locked in there and then you have a question Jefferson Ruggs Rager those three guys does one of them do well enough at the combine to jettison himself or to lock himself into the first round and I think so I think Ruggs is the guy who's going to do it and honestly Jefferson could do it too
1: yeah, I think Ruggs more so Ruggs because of that speed. He ran four two five, Matthews, you know, four two five in the spring. And he wasn't happy with his start. So anytime you run four two two, four two five you your Alabama and you got some prunes, you're, you're gonna go. I mean you're gonna go. Chennault I, I I you talk about people in the league, that's who you talk to for this. And some there are some that think he's more of a two. So I know the mocks have him in the one. It's still very early for Mox. I only have my mock two point out. I had him in Mach one, but we'll see about Chennault. Uh, I think that's why I think with Jefferson's borderline, but if if you're gonna say Ruggs is in, which I think he is, that's I went with Jefferson. You could go Chenault. So I would say five. So an over four and a half. But like I say, there's no guarantee because we're only agreeing on four. We haven't agreed on five. So that's why they put it at four and a half. are no, no free lunches in Vegas for anything they, they put out.
0: All right. So Ruggs is the key. Like everyone thinks, if he runs that four five, then he's Get a first rounder. It's a no brainer. Yeah,
1: guaranteed. Absolutely, no, no right. question.
0: The projection on him is four three oh five. uh that's the forty time. That's the that's the total that the market has set. Right now, Mel Kuyper, do you see him running over or under the 4
1: He's going under 4-3, I would think. Uh, if he ran 4 in the spring, as, as we all know, and he said he didn't get off to a good start, then he's expecting to run 4-2-2. He's expecting to run what Ross ran. He's expecting to run a, a, a blistering 40. So I would say you know, if he runs 4 2 for him it would be disappointing. So uh, if it's 4-3, I would say under 4-3.
0: Let's talk about quarterbacks for one second, because Joe Burrow yesterday blew up the world by tweeting about his nine-inch hands and that he's going to think about retirement and sort of, you know, in a fun way, sort of mocking the conversation that happens around the the way that everybody sort of focuses on these details at the NFL Combine. Mel, if you're looking at this, and I remember we did this years ago in ESPN the magazine. There right. is a very specific stat that is the best. Indicator of success at the NFL level for a quarterback. What is the stat you look at most that is the best indicator for success?
1: Well, I think it's it's not just one stat, and it's certainly not you know now the arm, obviously the strength. We know we talk about that. It gets better once you're in the league, so you can't worry too much about that. The, obviously, the height. That's been destroyed, and that whole talk that you got to be a certain. Russell Wilson opened that door. And I said he was going to be the test case. Once Russell Wilson was successful at 5'10" and, and under 5'11", then that opened the door for Kyler Murray to be the number one pick in the draft. So you needed that success. If you talk about intelligence of a quarterback, I'm not talking about just just intelligence in the classroom, but football intelligence, and also being a great leader. And i talk about. I'd say the single most important is competitiveness. If you said, forgetting no, competitiveness is everybody a competitor. But are you a 10-plus? Are you a 7? So they're all competitive. Josh Allen, I think, silenced the skeptics and doubters who didn't like him coming out of Wyoming because he's an incredible competitor, best competitor, most competitive player Craig Bowl ever coached. He coached Carson Wentz. So when you, you see what he's doing in Buffalo, the players gravitate to him. That competitiveness is huge. The, 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 talk about the hand size. Well, you can't be under a 9. Right. Well, Joe Burrow's a nine. Patrick Mahomes was nine and a quarter. Jared Goff was nine. So, you know, not much bigger than Burrow was was Sam Darnold and Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady. And so you can go one, but you can't be under nine. But being, having a big hand doesn't mean anything because there's a lot of busts that had huge hands. OK, I give you a lot of names of guys who did not pan out that Cody Kessler, Mark Sanchez had a big hand. He shoulder had a big hand. Paxton Lynch had a huge hand. Christian Ponder had a big hand. E. J. Manuel. Uh, you know, there's a lot of quarterbacks that had big hands that did not pan out. So again, competitiveness is huge. Football intelligence is huge. 40-time means nothing, Tom Brady, had the slowest 40-time of any quarterback I've written up in, in, uh, in 45 years or 42 years, whatever it is. Uh, second slowest was Ryan Mallett. So uh, Brady, you know, and, and the worst vertical jump of any quarterback ever, I so don't care about vertical jumps for quarterbacks, I don't care about 40-times for quarterbacks. In the end, a lot of it is the it factor, and does a quarterback have it or he doesn't. Uh, so to answer the question, Evaluating a quarterback is the toughest thing organizations have to do. And I'll give you an example. When the Dallas Cowboys drafted Dak Prescott, they tried to get Paxton Lynch. They tried to get Connor Cook. Then they settled for Dak Prescott. When the Kansas City Chiefs drafted Patrick Mahomes the year prior to that, they tried to get Paxton Lynch. Had they been successful in getting Lynch – Patrick Mahomes is not a Kansas City Chief the next year. So that's how fragile and how crazy and how tough it is. What a guessing game it is in terms of evaluating quarterbacks. Guys look like they're geniuses, but they also considered some major busts that had to, that things worked out differently. What would, have, what would Andy Reid's status in Kansas City be if Paxton Lynch was there and not Patrick Mahomes? So again, sometimes you know, good luck, good fortune overrides great analysis.
0: All right. So the, the guys that everyone's talking about now, the potential Paxton Lynches of this draft, Joe Burrow. Tua. Justin Herbert, right? There's a line out there that says four and a half is the total number of quarterbacks that will be taken. Other guys that people are talking about, Jordan Love from Utah State, Jacob Eason from Washington, Jake Fromm from Georgia. Do you see any of those guys, two of those guys, sneaking into the first round to put that number over five?
1: I would say no. Matthew, you can take your shot at it. I think three, obviously three are guaranteed. The fourth I think would be Jacob Eason. thought it was Jordan Love, talked to a lot of people about it. Jacob Eason's getting some with that cannon arm and the size. It's either Love or Eason, not both. I don't think both. And that's going to be in that late first round area where you have New England, possibly. I don't think the Saints will. With we'll Taysom Hill, we'll see what happens there. And will a team trade in there? That happens. We've seen that before. So if you think they trade in for one, not two. So I would say four quarterbacks max, not five in the first round.
2: Absolutely agree. This is an egregious line. It should be three and a half. If you look at the number of quarterbacks taken in the first round over the past 25 years, let's say even the past 35 years, only twice has it gotten over four and a half happened two years ago when Lamar Jackson had to sneak into the Mm -hmm. first round as the number 32 pick for us to get five and then it happened in 1999 when we had that loaded quarterback class with three guys going in the first three picks Tim Couch Donovan McNabb Achilles Smith you had Dante Culpepper in there but other than that and then that 1983 class we just talked about other than that it just doesn't happen five is an extremely high number I think we're closer to, to three than we are to four even if you were to set this line I think this is really bad. I think out of all of the combine props you could bet, this is the one that offers the most value
1: yeah, and I just echo what Matthew was saying uh, Chad, as far as Jacob Eason there is mixed opinion, and like I said, you talk to some teams don't have them in the first season you know, talk some that do, so again but Jordan Love, same thing, and Jordan Love didn't have the great senior bowl game, He's, you know, he didn't have the great year because of all the personnel that was taken from him in terms of the offensive line, top five receivers, which included Darwin Thompson, the running back, and, and uh, the tight end as well, so uh, I don't think, like I say, at this stage, neither Love nor Eason are guaranteed ones, they're borderline, so to get two borderline line first into the first is going to be very difficult, if not impossible. So uh, three are guaranteed. Uh, The fourth may happen, but not to get the four the five, which would put obviously the under four and a half very much in play.
0: So much of the draft and the process, and I think this is what Joe Burrow was talking about a little bit with his comments about the hand size, has been fetishized, right? Like every measurement so uh, microscopically examined. Looking back, like Mel You were so in on Isaac Bruce. You were so in on Curtis Martin, famously not in on Trev Alberts, like thinking about guys who have come out of the combine and shot up draft boards because of the combine. Who are people that you look back on and think, yeah, that was worth it. These guys were amazing because of what they were able to do with the combine.
1: Well, I think if you look positionally and I go back to, you know, the various spots going go back even to 2013, uh, DeAndre Hopkins didn't have a great 40 time, but he was 214 pounds. I remember talking to Clemson, and they raved about the kid's work ethic, his hands, never dropped the pass, uh, you know, had a good vertical, 36, uh, but enormous hands, and so consistent catching the ball. And I think, you know, I've made mistakes on taking chances on guys that weren't consistent catching the ball, thinking, well, you know, more con- better concentration, okay? You know, they make the spectacular catch, they drop the easy one. It's like the shortstop that boot- the routine ground ball, but he goes in the hole and he makes the play. If he's not consistent, I'm not making any more excuses. I learned my lesson on that one. So guys like Hopkins, it may not have that didn't have the elite 40 time. Tavon Austin went high. Remember that draft went much higher than the DeAndre Hopkins. Austin ran four three four, you know, at five eight and a half, 175. So again, speed. I would say it's overrated. In terms of running backs, it really is. Emmitt Smith didn't have a good 40. he's was around 4'6". Le'Veon Bell was 4'6". Okay? Go back to Camaro. I talked about what he ran, but his vertical and his broad were good. Uh, Again, yeah, uh, yeah, running backs, you're really going to worry about, like say Curtis Martin, you're really going to worry about what a running back's 40. But Devin Singletary with that four Are you kidding me? People say, oh, well, exactly How many times does a running back run in a straight line anyway? So to me, that's a very overrated part of the running back evaluation. is 40-yard dash time. So you learn from that. Wide receivers, I mentioned Juju Smith-Schuster had four, five, four. Other guys were running a lot faster. I don't care about an offensive lineman's 40 time. Now, if it's phenomenal, or Teron Armstead had that. Matthew, you remember Armstead coming out of Arkansas Pine Bluff had an incredible combine. If you like them. And then you saw him go there and wow everybody and do better than all these major college stars. And but you liked them in the way he dominated the small college level. Sure, you know you say, boy, that that validated it. But you don't take a player you're iffy on and all of a sudden jump his grade way up just because of a great combine. And you certainly don't, you know, downgrade a guy on the offensive line if he runs a bad forty. I can give you so many examples of offensive tackles who ran slow forties that turned out to be great players. You know, it's a laundry list of names. So I think if you study the positions, you realize what you place importance on and what you don't
0: who do you think is the biggest combine bust the last decade
1: great question. I'd have to really go back. Everybody brings up Mike Momola going way back, coming out of Boston College, whatever year that was, who had production and it had the great combine and all of a sudden you saw what happened there. I try to kind of focus on the guys who were really good rather than the ones who were disappointments. I'll go to Darius Hayward Bay from Maryland. Great speed and but was inconsistent you know, on the theme of being inconsistent with hands and not natural catching the football. Watched him a lot here, being in the backyard here of College Park and and he went in the top 10 to the Raiders. He had a very disappointing career. Alexander Wright, wide receiver out of Auburn, drafted by the Dallas was a speed burner, had incredible 40 times. I don't remember what it was, but it was blazing in that 4 3 range. But out I mean, Auburn, limited receptions, a little inconsistent, disappointing player. So I think those were guys that I just remember, you know, just to say names that just come to mind immediately. Matthew, I'm sure you have names over the last 10, 15 years, have, have been bust from the combine
2: yeah Darius Hayward Bay was the the clear one that I was thinking of for all the reasons you mentioned I mean I think his combine performance jettisoned him into the top 10 going ahead of Michael Crabtree uh, who seemed destined to be a a Raider and it it eventually happened but uh, didn't work out Mm -hmm. right away and then another guy who comes to mind linebacker A.J. Hawk who was just explosive at the combine and people uh, assumed that would translate to production on the field for the Packers and that just never happened
1: yeah, like Todd McShane and I were talking about, about Richard Sherman. He had a 38 vertical, then had a the great 40 time, he was a former wide receiver, and you see what he's been able to develop into. You look at, at they say, at the guys who were the disappointing guys that, that just didn't perform to the level of their talent. But again, what's going to prevent you from having players that don't live up to it? Did they perform well on the field? And that's why Mamula was a very, very tough evaluation because he had production at Boston College, but he had a, a late first-round grade that became an early first-round situation when the Eagles drafted him based on the combine working in conjunction with the productivity. And, and let me just say, Matthew, you know this, and Chad, you know, you, there's no perfect formula. You can say you have a system in place, even for, for gambling. You might have a system, right? It's not 100%. You can't deviate based on outliers. Outliers can't change your system or change your formula. You know, nothing's perfect. So you can always go to a quarterback that I liked or a receiver. and they, I missed on him. You miss, you miss. You can't let that bother you. And you can't let that change the value of that. Now, if you can learn something from it, maybe you put too much stock in a combine or a pro day. But sometimes he checked all the boxes and he was still not good. That just happens. That will happen. You're going from college to pro. You can't beat yourself up for mistakes like that.
0: Coming up next, we've got a very special NFL Combine edition of Listener Trivia. But first, Matthew Mitchell, our intrepid producer, has a little story to tell about his favorite pastime, daytime betting.
1: Afternoon delight.
4: Thanks, Chad. As you know, before I joined our little sports gambling fantasy factory here, I spent many years working a very ordinary job. Cubicles, water coolers, the whole deal. And like many ordinary jobs, it was often very boring. Now, being bored and having an unquenchable thirst for action, not a great combination. So, uh, I remember one afternoon looking out the window to a dreary Wisconsin winter, and I was thinking to myself, surely, somewhere in the world, somebody is preparing to sports it up against somebody else. And if that's true, I can, nay... Nay, I must gamble on it. And it was true. But but if you think spending seven years worth of Tuesday afternoons sweating your ass off over, you know, White Sox, Royals, unders, was a walk in the park, yeah, you could think again. It may sound easy, but it will test your head and your mind and your brain too. And when I got promoted to management, it only got harder. I don't know if you know this, Chad, but a good manager leads his team he doesn't monitor free throws in a Missouri Valley Conference tournament game. I remember our head of HR looked like Laura Dern. and She called me into her office and she broke it all down for me.
0: You will always be held to a different, higher standard. And it's fucked up, but that is the way it is.
4: Yeah, she was worried some harmless daytime gambling could become, quote, too distracting, but I had an airtight response ready to go.
3: What if the Founding Fathers found it too distracting to ride their horses to Independence Hall and sign the Declaration of Independence, huh? Well, you know, what about that?
4: Unfortunately, that response fell on deaf ears. But now I'm here in action, I don't have these problems anymore. If I find something to bet on while the Price is Right is still on TV, all the heads around me nod in approval, which is nice. And for most of the year, I have plenty to choose from. Oh, but oh, how swiftly the clouds of glory pass, Chad. This week, the landscape is especially barren, and I've turned, I've turned pretty desperate. And you know what they say about that.
1: Desperation is a stinky cologne.
4: Yes, I've turned to soccer, the deformed Tootsie Roll at the bottom of the sports gambling Halloween bag. Every time I do this, I think of my hero, Coach Pete Bell from Blue Chips, who knows exactly how I feel about betting soccer. Every time we get ready to play, I just want to throw up. So depressed, I don't even want to talk about it. I'm sick of watching you guys play. Just how bad can it get? But desperate times, desperate measures, and I'm betting a Champions League match. They actually call it that because every team that plays in it is a champion of boring your ass to death all afternoon. If I can calm down, it's soccer, it's soccer. Juventus visits Lyon on Wednesday afternoon and I'll be on the visitors here. The only thing I know about Juventus is they have Cristiano Ronaldo and we were born within the same week of each other. And we've achieved about the same level of professional and personal success. So the next time I see him on the continent at some sexy gala, I'm sure he'll be tickled that I bet on him here. But win or lose, it definitely beats working all afternoon. Because when you bet during the day, Chad, you're already a winner.
0: Joining us now for our listener trivia, let's see if they can stump our NFL draft, NFL Combine experts, producer of the Full Slate podcast, Alex Uplinger, Alex, how are you, buddy?
1: Hey, how's it going, guys? Alex, good to be with you. Hey,
0: man. Alex, share with us your trivia question.
2: All right. So we all know the Action Network's own, Darren Ravel, his famous 40, was ran at 6.99 seconds. I was wondering if you could name the player who ran the closest time to that in the combine.
1: Whew. was it Orlando Brown's time slow and that it was an offensive tackle from Cincinnati back in the day. Jason Fabini had a very good career and his numbers at the combine were not good. But beyond that, that's my best guesses.
2: I honestly have no guess on this, but I think it would have to be an offensive lineman. Orlando Brown sounds as good of a guess as any. All right, Alex, give us the answer.
4: Isaiah Thompson,
2: offensive lineman from Houston in 2011. Ran a 6.040. Wow. Okay. Very good. <laughs> wow. That's so guest.
0: <laughs> it is not every day you can get someone on the phone that can stump Mel, both Mel Kuyper and Matthew Friedman. That is fantastic. <laughs> Alex, thanks for the trivia question. That's going to do it for this episode of The Favorites. My thanks to Matthew Friedman and the great Mel Kuyper for joining. Before we go, let's check in with Action Network CEO Patrick Keene, see what he thought of today's show.
2: Well, wow. gentlemen, what a sham. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today?
0: All right, thank you for that inspiration, Patrick Keene. And before the music plays us out, to all our listeners and followers, we would like to take a moment to apologize to Joe West. Last year, one of the Action Network's former employees, Paul LaDuca, who used to be a catcher in Major League Baseball, made certain statements about Mr. West during a podcast affiliated with the Action Network. First, Mr. Laduca stated that he had been thrown out of 15 games in his life and that eight or nine of them were by Mr. West. Second, Mr. Laduca asserted that at a game against the Philadelphia Phillies in 2006 or 2007 where he was the catcher, Billy Wagner was one of the pitchers and Mr. West was the home plate umpire. Laduka asserted Billy Wagner told him that Wagner lends his 1957 Chevy to Mr. West and Mr. West opens up the strike zone for him. The Action Network does not have any evidence to support either of those statements. The Action Network apologizes to Joe West for any harm caused by those statements. These statements are hereby retracted and the podcast has been removed from our website. This has been the favorites from the Action Network. Download it from iTunes and Apple Podcasts, from Spotify, from wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, Love you.